Our scripture reading this morning will come from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them, and those who were mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you don't already have your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 13, I want you to just do that briefly this morning. I'm going to be asking you to open to a couple of passages with me as we talk this morning because there's something really important that all of us need to see. The things that I'm presenting this morning don't come from my own ideas, my own, uh, my own doctrines and, and personal convictions. They come from the Word of God. And I want you to see that when we talk about marriage and what it is and what God designed it to be, that the things we're saying and the things I'm preaching this morning, they come directly from God's word. This is him speaking to you. And so if you're looking at Hebrews 13 verses one through eight, it's kind of an interesting passage. The passage that was just read a moment ago by brother Steve. In Hebrews 13 verses one through eight, God is showing some Christians in the first century how to maintain health. In the last couple of years, as we've dealt with the pandemic, being healthy has been on everyone's mind. And oftentimes, all that being healthy entails in, in the way we think is avoiding sickness. If I can just avoid a virus, if I can just avoid things that would make me unhealthy, then I'll be fine. But there's more to being healthy than just avoiding that which is negative. We need to pursue things that are healthy inherently if we're going to be physically healthy. Working out, making sure that we have exercise, walking, things like that promote good health. Things like the right kind of diet promotes the good, a, a good health. And, and those kinds of things, getting enough sleep at night, those things promote health just as much as staying away from potential areas where I might be contaminated by a virus. As you're looking at Hebrews 13 verses 1 through 8, God is showing the church how to maintain health, how to be healthy Christians. And I just want you to look at Hebrews 13 verses 1 through 8 very quickly in your Bible. If you look at verses 1 through 3, every congregation, if it would be sound, if it would be healthy, must emphasize brotherly love. Isn't that what the passage teaches? Hebrews 13 verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Be hospitable, verse 2. Don't forget about the ones who are in prison. Share in their sufferings, Hebrews 13 verse 3. So brotherly love, emphasizing concern and compassion for one another and for those who are outside, for those who are lost as well. If I would be healthy, if you would be healthy, we must emphasize brotherly love. 
Skip verse four for just a moment. We're going to come back to it, but look at verses five and six. Contentment in the Lord. If we would emphasize being spiritually healthy as a congregation here at Katy, not only must brotherly love be emphasized, but contentment in the Lord. Be content with such things as you have. Put your confidence and your trust in God, it says. Hebrews 13, verses five and six. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And then as you look at verse seven, respect for authority. Spiritual health. Isn't this a good recipe? It comes right out of God's word. Brotherly love, contentment in the Lord, verses five and six, respect for authority, verse seven. And then finally, as you look at verse eight, trust in Jesus Christ in everything. Putting our confidence and our trust and our hope in Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If we would be a healthy congregation of the Lord's people, these are things that matter. Now, look at verse 4, and it almost doesn't seem like it fits, almost. Because in the middle of all these other principles and ideas like brotherly love and contentment and respect for authority and trusting in Jesus no matter what, You've got this one verse in Hebrews 13, verse four that says, depending on your translation, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the bed be undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. What does that have to do with anything? I'll tell you, strong churches are built upon the building blocks of strong families. And to add to that, when we think about what promotes health, what we say collectively and individually, what we say as a congregation, what we say individually about what marriage is, is an indicator of our relationship with the Lord. It says something, marriage is important to God because he thought of it, he designed it, he invented it, and he has given us rules and regulations by which we can observe and be a part of what it means to be married. And marriage is to be held in honor among all. Look at the passage, Hebrews 13, verse four. Everybody is to honor marriage. Not just married people, not just the husbands and wives among us. Every one of us is to look at the marriage relationship and we're to have a healthy view of marriage. By the way, this doesn't just go for the church, it also relates to nations. Every nation that has risen and fallen in history Mighty nations, when they're rising, have a healthy, at least somewhat biblical view of God and the home. Somewhat healthy view of what it means in God's way of thinking to have a home, a family. And as nations fall, you can notice a trend. Families fall apart. The traditional ways of honoring marriage and looking at what a marriage relationship is, those things become kind of by the wayside. We need, as God's people, to talk about marriage, to talk about what it means and to talk about why it's so important, especially now, especially today. Some of the things I'm going to say this morning, and again, I want you to understand these things come from God's word, not from my thoughts. Some of the things I'm going to say run directly counter to the political correctness of our day, but we still need to talk about these things because this is part of what it means to honor marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all. It says something about our spiritual health and well-being. It says something about our relationship with God. 
What I want to do this morning is share with you four truths relative to marriage that every single human being needs to acknowledge and recognize. Every single one of us needs to think about marriage and what God designed it to be. And here are four truths that are worth contemplating. Number one this morning, marriage is a divine institution. Marriage is a divine institution. If you have your Bible, turn back, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2, and I want you to look at verses 18 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, probably the second page of your Bible, and I want you to look at verses 18 through 25. It's interesting that the very first relationship, other than the man's relationship with God, the very first relationship was a marriage. Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, Genesis 2, 18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to the cattle and to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Genesis 2, 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took in one of his, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. It is a divine institution. God is the architect of marriage. We are living in a time in world history where men have taken the institution of marriage and they have tried to arbitrarily decide what it is and what it is not. Our lawmakers in Washington have decided that some things constitute marriage that are not representative of what the Bible says constitutes marriage. We all need to acknowledge that marriage fundamentally is a divine institution. It predates everything else relationship-wise. It predates the founding of the nation of Israel. It predates the founding of the New Testament church. It predates the founding of any nation. God is the architect of marriage. And if we are going to get marriage right, we must go to the architect and look at his blueprints. There is no other way in which we can honor marriage acceptably before God. This is his will. I want you to notice in Genesis chapter two, as the passage we just read, not only is God the architect, but it's interesting that God created male and female with marriage in mind. God created male and female, men and women, and he did that with marriage in mind. The reason why there are genders is because God wanted males and females to be married one day. That's the reason why there are genders. We need to think about God as the architect of marriage and what God has said regarding the way gender is to work. I just want you to put your finger there in Genesis 2 for just a moment. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. 
There are some things that all of us need to understand if we're going to honor marriage appropriately, if we're going to think about God's will concerning this vital subject. Again, it's an indicator of our spiritual health. Is marriage honored? You walk into any religious group anywhere in the world and ask the question, what does this group teach about marriage? What does this group believe about what a marriage is constituted by? That's an important question according to Hebrews 13 verse four. I want you to look at Romans chapter one and I want you to look at verses 26 through 28. Romans 1, 26 through 28, listen to the passage. In Romans 1, 26, the apostle Paul says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. He's talking about people who have departed in their knowledge from God. Gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use, notice that, for what is against nature. He's talking about biology here in verse 26. In verse 27, likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman. He's talking about biology and gender here. He's saying men are looking at their biology and they're leaving the natural biological use of the woman and instead burning in their lust for one another men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not retain, verse 28, God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. When we think about gender, biblically, there is my biology, your biology, and there is how I feel from a gender perspective. Biology and how I feel, my passions. That's what Romans chapter one, verse 26 would talk about, passions. Historically, here's been what people did. If I don't feel like my biology is right, if I feel like, for example, that I am a woman trapped in a man's body, if that's the way I feel, historically we have said, but wait, your biology says that you are a man. Your biology says you're a woman. Your biology wins out. Historically, that's been the way we've done it. What we've done now as a society is we've said, biology doesn't matter. It's how you feel, it's your passion. And look at what Romans 1, 26 through 28 teaches. Again, if I decide in my heart that my biology is not what I want it to be or I don't agree with my biology, my passion makes it normal. The Bible says in Romans 1, 26 through 28, that's wrong, that's, that's, that's backwards. The Bible says, no, your passion makes it abnormal. Your passion makes it unnatural. We are not trying to be unkind, but this is what God designed us to be. Our biology is determinative, it's normative. It shows us what's right and what's good in the way that we use our bodies. And marriage was created so that men could be married to women. This is the way God designed it from the beginning. He is the architect and honoring marriage means that we must honor God's design and God's intention as described by his will. It means that we give honor to things that are noble and right in God's sight. Looking again, as you think about this passage, uh, Genesis chapter two, God ordained, brothers and sisters, that procreation should happen exclusively in marriage. Exclusively. That means only. That means uniquely. That means this is the only time and place in which sexual activity is permissible by God. 
This is his pattern. This is his will. He designed male and female, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1 verse 28, and he designed for that to happen within a married, committed relationship, period, dot. There is no other expression of sexuality that is legitimate that is not sinful except within the confines of a married relationship. That's it. Exclusively. God designed procreation to happen exclusively in a marriage relationship. I want to say something. We are living in an economy and a time when I realize it's difficult for people to to make ends meet. One One of the byproducts of that has been that over the last couple of decades, cohabitation without marriage has become much more normal and much more accepted in our society than it once was. For Christians, for people who honor marriage, if I cohabit with somebody with whom I'm romantically involved, that's wrong. It's not God's will for me to live with someone with whom I'm romantically involved and we are not married. It's not right. And God's people need to stand for what's right and talk about what's right. In Proverbs chapter six, verse 27, somebody says, well, you know, what if, what if in our cohabitation, what if what we do is, you know, we we just, we stay apart in the home, you know? We're going to honor God's will concerning our sexual relationship, and we're just not going to be together, but we're going to live together. What if that's what we do? Proverbs 6.27 is your passage. The wise man asks this question. He says, can a man take fire to his chest and not get burned? And you know what the context there is in Proverbs 6.27? Sexual temptation. He's saying, don't even go to a place where you're going to be putting fire in your chest and thinking, oh, I can do this without getting burned. Doesn't work that way. God has ordained that marriage is the sole place where sexual activity is legitimate. We need to talk about this because it says something about our attitude toward marriage. Honor marriage. Next, as you think about marriage being a divine institution, Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 6, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Isn't that interesting? What God has joined together. You know, when two people come down the aisle and they stand in front of the audience and they say their vows, we say, well, they've made a promise to each other. Yes, they have. But Jesus says, God is the one who's involved in joining those two together. God's the one who makes that marriage a marriage. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is a divine institution and may the people of God always, always believe that. May that be our conviction no matter what the government or anyone else says. Secondly, this morning, Marriage is not just a divine institution, but it's a supreme relationship. If you have your Bible, open to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, it's a supreme relationship. That is to say, there's almost no relationship that is greater. Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. Just think about this. 
if we were to take all of our relationships, your business relationships, your friendships, if you were to take your relationship with your children, your relationship with your parents, and, and you were to rank those, put all those on a sheet of paper and rank them in order of importance, what goes first? Marriage does. Watch this. Marriage is superior to our relationship with our children. Ephesians 6 verse 2, honor children, your father and your mother. Fathers and mothers, one of the best things you could ever do for your kids is to have the kind of marriage that shows something of Christ and his love for the church. One of the best things you could ever do for your kids is to invest in each other because it provides safety and it provides security for children and it also models for them the kind of love that they need in their lives one day. But marriage is superior to our relationship with our children and sometimes as married couples, we can forget that if we're not careful. Sometimes the kids needs, and I understand kids are needy and I understand kids have things that cannot wait until later. That happens, but we need to have a serious discussion in our home when the kids rule the roost, when what the kids want and what the kids need is dominating our marriage relationship. Secondly, it is superior to our relationship with our parents. You remember Genesis 2, 24? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. There is a leaving and there is a cleaving that takes place when a man and a woman are married. Often in counseling with people, we talk about this. We say that when a couple becomes married, they need to leave. They need to leave emotionally from their parents. It doesn't mean you don't love your parents anymore. It doesn't mean that you don't care about and, 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 and talk to your parents anymore, but there's an emotional detachment that needs to take place because you're creating a new home together. Leaving financially is a practical side of that. How can we as a couple be independent as, as best we can with God's help in a financial way? Even leaving geographically is sometimes advisable. The idea is there's a new home being established, a new marriage and a new relationship being created. And it is superior to our relationship with our parents. As you look at it, Ephesians 5, 22 33, notice a supreme illustration pictures marriage. When Paul talked about what marriage is, he said, it is like the kind of love that Jesus has for his church. That's what marriage is like. The way Jesus loves the church and the way the church submits to Jesus and all things, that's the relationship that ought to be modeled by a husband and a wife. There is no higher picture of that kind of love given by God, except marriage. That's serious. Ephesians 5.25, it is supreme love that sustains marriage. What every marriage needs more of is sacrificial I want what's best for you kind of love. Every marriage needs more of that. The Bible says in Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives. And here's the degree, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The supreme penalty is described for those who would harm and dishonor marriage. You remember Hebrews 13 verse four from the beginning of the lesson? The last part of that verse says, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge, and he will not judge them favorably. It's serious. 
what you and I say and do regarding marriage may well mean the difference in where we spend eternity. Number three this morning, as we think about what marriage is, marriage makes two people one. It makes two people one. Think about this for just a minute. This is a matter of doctrine. It's a matter of principle. What God has joined together, let not man separate. If you're looking at Ephesians chapter five, look at verses 28 through 32. The Bible speaks about the husband and his love for his wife in verse 28. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, verse 29, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, it goes on in verse 31, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage makes two people one. It's a matter of doctrine. It's a matter of principle. One in what way? Think about these things. It's a matter of choice in the first place. As we think about our marriage relationship and becoming one, we are to become one in heart. I only have eyes for you. We only look at our spouse. We only love and are concerned about our spouse. We love our spouse in a way that we don't love anybody else ever. We don't even think about it. In heart, we become one. In self-giving, we become one. Talking about the sexual relationship in marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4, the Bible says, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but her husband does. And the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Noodle on that for a little bit. The idea is that we are to be giving, self-giving, kind and considerate and thoughtful in the way we treat each other in our marriage relationship. We are to be one in material possessions. First Peter chapter three, verse seven, calls husbands and wives heirs together of the grace of life. Heirs together of the grace of life. The grace and the blessings that God has bestowed upon us, it's not a matter of hers and mine or hers and his, it's a matter of ours. We are to be one. We are to be one in spiritual interests. You know, oftentimes when we talk about marriage, those other three things being one in heart, one in self-giving, one in material possessions, those things, those are, those are fairly popular. Those are fairly widespread. Most everybody that believes in marriage believes, yes, those things are true. But then we get to this number four and people start to object. Hands start to go up. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This doesn't work. This is, this, you're, you're telling me that a husband and a wife need to have the same spiritual interests. You're telling me that it's good and it's right for a husband to believe and to practice and to, and to live the same way that his wife believes and practices and lives. Yes, that is what I'm saying because that's what the Bible says. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos chapter three, verse three. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, the Bible counsels us to make sure that we're not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The idea of the passage is, is, is sharing, it's, it's, it's not exclusively about marriage, but it applies. The idea is marriage works so much better and it's so much more honoring and pleasing to God when two people are genuinely devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and they want more than anything else to make him the Lord of their lives. And they wanna help each other go to heaven. That's what God intended marriage to be. 
And young people, when you're growing up and you're looking for somebody and you're thinking, you know, I might wanna marry this person, I, wanna, I might wanna think about, um, you know, getting married to that person, it's not just about young people, what they look like and how beautiful they are and how popular they are and how talented they are. Those are all good things, but the most, absolutely most important thing is, is this young lady, is this young man a Christian? Do they sincerely, from their heart, love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what's most important. You find somebody that loves the Lord that way, and you can tell. You can tell by the way they attend services. You can tell by the way they sing. You can tell by the way they give. You can tell where their hearts are. It's not hard to figure out where people's hearts are. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You find out where their hearts are. Are they Christians? And if that's a yes, then you found somebody with the same spiritual interests. That's the foundation for a good, healthy, God-honoring marriage. Marriage makes two people one. One preacher used to say, when you marry somebody who is a child of the devil, Jesus said when we're in sin, that's what we are, John chapter eight. When you marry somebody who's a child of the devil, you'll always have trouble with your father-in-law. It's true, it's true. Marriage makes two people one. Number four this morning, marriage is for life. Write it down, write it in ink, and do not forget it. Marriage was intended by God to be till death do us part. It's not just romantic rhetoric to be shared at wedding ceremonies. This is what we believe because we honor marriage, because we want to live in a way that pleases God. Marriage is for life till death parts us. Open your Bibles one more time to first, uh, excuse me, to Romans chapter seven, Romans chapter seven. And I want you to look at this passage, Romans chapter seven, because we honor marriage and because we honor God and because we want to be spiritually healthy, this is important. This is vital. This is not just an optional thing, you know, exercise. If I really want to be healthy, exercise is not an optional thing. If we really want to be healthy, it's a must. It's a necessity. Eating right is not an option if we want to be healthy. Honoring marriage is not an option if we want to be healthy. Watch this. Romans 7, 1 through 3, marriage is not and never was intended to be a temporary arrangement in this life. Listen to what God, God says through Paul. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak as those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. Listen to those words in verse two. It's for life. God intended it to be for life. He always designed marriage to be that way. But if the husband dies, his life is over. She is released from the law of her husband. And then he goes on one step further in verse three. He says, so then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies... Why is this emphasis on death here? Because marriage is for life. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. It's not a temporary arrangement, brothers and sisters and friends. Marriage is something that people take very lightly sometimes when they're saying their I do's, but God doesn't. God says, this is a lifelong commitment. This is a promise that you've made and I'm gonna hold you to this because this is part of what honoring marriage is all about. It is a permanent in this life arrangement with just one exception. The one exception is fornication. 
sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage. If one or the other partner in that marriage relationship commits fornication, that's any kind of sexual immorality outside of that marriage relationship, then the innocent party may put their spouse away and may marry another. That's what Jesus taught in Matthew 19, verse 9. Whoever divorces his wife except for fornication, for sexual immorality, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus himself. And people say, well, but that seems really harsh. In fact, that's what the disciples said to Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 10. Lord, this is a hard saying. It is a hard saying because God wants us to appreciate how serious marriage is. And he wants us to give appropriate honor and weight to the marriage relationship. This is the Lord's word. And this is what we must live by as the people who want to honor him. The relationship, by the way, is limited to this life only. The Bible teaches, I know this is hard for some people to grasp, but the Bible teaches that our marriages are over when our lives are over. Our marriages end when life ends. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 30, that in heaven, in the next world, we will not marry nor be given in marriage, but we'll be like the angels in that regard. The angels don't get married. And the Bible says, and Jesus says that that's the way it's gonna be with us. We will know each other. We will appreciate the relationship that we once enjoyed and appreciate what, what, what we meant to each other in this world. I believe all those things are true, but marriage is something that is for this life, not the next. When you go back and think about Hebrews 13, it actually, when you think about all these things that we've talked about this morning, we're talking about God's divine will. We're talking about God as the architect of human relationships. And we're talking about marriage being the fundamental building block of churches and of societies. If the world would listen to the architect and if we build according to his blueprint and if we do the things that he counsels, every society would be instantly stronger and every church would instantly be stronger as well. Let's be as the people of God here in Katy, let's be a people who want to be devoted to honoring marriage, to thinking about its beauty, to thinking about the good things that God intends for those who are married and to respect the author's intentions to respect God's will concerning this very precious institution. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a New Testament Christian. Maybe you've been studying the gospel and you know that Jesus Christ came to this world and he died for you so that you could be right with him and you wanna make your life right this morning. Here's how that happens. Believe in Jesus Christ. Put your trust and your faith in him. He is the Lord. He said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, John 8, 29. Confess his name, repent of your sin, be baptized for remission of sins. It's at the point of baptism that we come into a saving relationship with the Lord. It's at the point of baptism that we become part of the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. It's at the point of baptism that we find salvation. If you're ready to make that commitment this morning, if you'd like to respond and ask for prayers, whatever your need, won't you, stand, won't you make it known while together we stand and while we sing.